If you are in third grade and below and you want to head back to kids' church at this time, you can do that if you want. But if you want to stay here and hang out with us, you are more than welcome to be here. Uh, for the rest of us, let's open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 33. Starting in verse 33. So if you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter, that's the bold number on the page, the big number. And the verse is the small number. Uh, so we're in the middle of a series walking through the second half of the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus has been proclaimed the Messiah, and now all of a sudden his demeanor changes, uh, everything changes about the way he's teaching his disciples, and everything gets a, a serious, takes on a more serious tone as it's heading toward the cross. And, uh, and so today we're going to be looking at sin, which is fun. Um, but naturally, this, that's where we're at. Na we are born sinful. Like, we're naturally not servants. For example, my boys, I've got, I've got three, uh, three one-year-olds, if you don't know, and they are, they're sinful people. Um, here's an example. If, if you're preparing a snack or preparing a meal for these guys, and you hand it to one of them, and then you turn around to get something prepared for the other two, the other two will jump the one who got the food and steal his food from him. Like, you don't have to teach a kid to do that. They do that naturally, right? And so, and so when, we're, when you begin looking at sin, Jesus starts this conversation off and talking about what does he want us to look like? What does he want us to be like? And so look at verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way, they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Hey, Brandon, I'm going to switch to the red mic. It's super echoey up here. It's kind of… Uh... Okay, so Jesus, he, he, he's talking with his, he's walking with his disciples on the way, and all of a sudden, they get quiet because he asked them a question and said, what were you arguing about? And no one wanted to answer him because he knew, because they knew, he's not going to like what they were arguing about. They were arguing about which of these dudes were the greatest. Naturally, that's what we do. Naturally, we want the food, or we want to be the best, or we want to be the premier person, or we want to be the coolest, or whatever it is. And so these guys are arguing, saying, nah, I'm cooler than you, Peter. I'm greater than you, Peter. And Peter's like, no, nah, Jesus took me to go see the, the miraculous healing. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And all of a sudden, Jesus says this, sitting down, verse 35, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. So Jesus is beginning this conversation by saying this, this is what I want you to look like. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. And then he, he gives them an, an example of this principle. Look at verse 36. And he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes a little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And so he takes a kid, and he says, if you welcome this child, you welcome me. And if you serve this child, then you're serving me. And then if you serve me, you're serving the Father, the one who sent me. And so here's his, here's his principle. Here's what he's saying. He says, let your love for me, let your love for Jesus lead you 
to love, serve, and accept others who can never repay you. He says, let your love for me lead you to love and accept and serve other people who have no ability to repay you back. That's what he's saying. That is what I want you to look like. That's who I want you to be. I want you to be a servant of all people. But as a dad who has young kids now, I didn't get this until I had them, is that this includes them. Because you think of like, he takes a young child and you think, oh yeah, I want to love other people. And that includes like the guy who's asking for money uh, by Las Vegas Trail, like on the, on, at, the, at the light. Or he's the guy who, uh, who needs, who needs a, a help with a meal. Or, or it's a person in my class, a child in my class that I'm teaching who needs extra help, who's have a rough home life, and he needs help with extra tutoring. And I can give up my time to help serve the student. But, but rarely do I connect this back to my own kids, right? I'm saying like when Jesus says, hey, if you, if you take this child and you serve this child, then it's like you're serving me, but you don't think, but that includes my kid, because I know how to my kid acts at home, and he needs a spanking, not me to get him pizza, you know? And so like that's what we think, but it's, it's easy to view our kids as a burden. Like it's easy to view them as a restrictor of our freedom to think back of what we used to be able to do before we had them, but now we've got them, and so now I can't go hang out or whatever. It's 8 p.m., and they have to go to bed, and so now I have to be here at home. And so like, they become this restrictor for us, and so you do what you have to do, but you don't enjoy it, or you don't enjoy them. And this is not the case for all parents, but I'm saying, but sometimes we have this, can have this mindset or have this tendency. And so what Jesus says here is he says, let the spirits work within you based out of your relationship with him lead you to even enjoy your kids. And then allow that to transform everyday mundane tasks into opportunities to display love, serving others, humility, and how following Jesus affects every area of your life. Because here's the truth is that you are the main discipler of your child. Your children were given to you, and God has given you the responsibility to bring them up and lead them to follow Jesus and to know who he is, know what he's like. That is your job with your kids. It's not Jared's or mine or Brent's or anyone else. Like, we're here to help. But it's you. It's on you. You're the main discipler of your kids. And so when you begin to apply the gospel to everyday life by understanding that when Jesus lifts, Jesus is the one who lifts you up. Jesus is the one who, like, picks you up, and he comes to you and and gives you a hope and gives you a future, then that means you don't have to do it for yourself. It enables you to be a servant for other people and not search for people to serve you to go get you the remote. And that then transforms bath time, or it transforms getting lunches together for the next day, or ironing clothes for the next day, or cooking dinner, or preparing lunches, or, or bedtime routines, which for June, it's an hour long every night, man. I'm not kidding. Or enforcing homework time, or attending school activities, or simply playing with Barbies when you think, I cannot make up another scenario for this Barbie again. All of these things, all of a sudden, are then transformed into moments to display love and humility and service to your children. And you're by that, you're leading them to understand what God is like in patience and with love and with care 
You're teaching your children. That's, that's a discipleship moment. When you are serving your children and you're transforming those moments into that, as a moment of service, it's not as an obligation or it's not as something you have to do because your wife told your kid that you were going to do it, so now you're stuck doing it. But instead, it's, it's a moment to display what Jesus is like to your kids. Because these are no longer routines you just have to suffer through, but they become instead opportunities to display to your kids the work of the Spirit in your heart and to produce the fruit of humility, servanthood, perseverance, love, patience, grace, and mercy. Listen to Jesus' principle again. Sitting down with the twelve, he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. That is his ideal. That is his call for us. But we're not always there, right? Oh, no, I just turned something on here. We're not always there. Because Jesus turns and he gives us a warning. He knows what we're like. He knows that, like, we are messed up. So when my grandmother, who passed away in 2007, uh, so they were at First Baptist. My grandpa was at First Baptist for 38-something years, 30-something years, and, uh, and they were there, but they, they had a cookbook that they put together. So you, would, you could submit recipes, and they made a church cookbook. And when my grandmother was on her deathbed, she was passing away from, uh, from cancer, she turned to my grandpa, and she said, I, I need to confess something. And so he gets beside her, and he's like, okay, what, what, what do you need to confess? And she said, when I submitted my recipe for the church cookbook, I didn't include all of the ingredients. <laughs> As a side note, imagine being on your deathbed, and that is the sum of what you need to confess. But all of us have a need for confession. We all have these things in us that we know if it comes out, it's not going to be good for me. It's not going to make me look good. It's not going to help other people like me better. And God knows this about us. And so he sent Jesus, and Jesus, he says, this is the ideal. I want you to be a servant of all people. He says, but I know you're not that way. I know that's not your natural bent. And so he says, so he says I want to give you a warning. I want to give you a warning. Because when you, when you don't live this way, meaning by the Spirit, putting other people ahead of yourself, he said, but instead you begin to walk in sin and then you lead others to do, this, do the same. He says, this is what verse 42 to 50 says. These are the deadly consequences of causing our others and ourselves to stumble. Because sin to God is serious. Look what he says in verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Because as we've already seen in verse 33 to 37, our role as a follower of Christ is to serve others and to lift them up as Christ would. We're to lead others to know who Jesus is and to know what he's like through our lives, through the way we treat people, through the way we serve people, through how we speak and the words that we speak. Therefore, when we engage in sin and then we lead others to do the same, we're not demonstrating Jesus as he's called us to do, but instead we're demonstrating the opposite of him, which is the devil. <laughs> he's he's going to go there here. He says, when you, when you, lead people, when you begin to, to walk in sin and you lead others to do the same, you're not leading people to know and love Jesus. You're, you're, you're acting like the devil. That's what, he, that's what he's getting at. 
And that's a serious offense to God because you're leading people away from him. And so look what he says in verse 42 again. But whoever causes one of these little ones, including your children, to be, who believes in me to fall away, it would be better, note, better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What he just said, if you lead someone to, to, to sin and walk away from God, it would be better for you to die gangster style. For me to get like a, take you down to the Trinity River, get a really big rock, tie it around your neck, throw you in. God said it'd be better for you if that were your, your fate. Why would that be better? It's better than the alternative of what will really happen is what he's going to get at. Because there's something that he's going he's to say, hey, for the people who really do lead people away from God, who demonstrate with their life they're not interested in him, and they're leading other people to not be interested in him, it's not going to go well. Because God's not, but listen, God's not concerned only with other people, right? He's not concerned only with how you treat other people. He's concerned with you too, with your heart, with your relationship with him. And he wants you to also to walk in wisdom, to walk in purity, to walk in righteousness, because he designed this world. And he knows that if you pursue or just dabble in sin, it will always end in a train wreck. It will always end in a train wreck. And be warned. Whether you confess it or not, your sin will always be found out. It'll always come out. But here's the truth, is that is God's grace. Your sin being found out is God's grace for you because God is lovingly ripping things out of your life that he knows are going to lead to your destruction. And he's saying, I don't want that for you. And so just as you would stop your kids, so in this parking lot, I don't typically just let my kids just run to the car or try to get to the car. One, because they would fall on their faces because they're not very stable. But also, I don't typically just want them running in a parking lot. Why? Because I'm their dad, and I can see that they, they can't perceive when a car is coming or when a car is not coming. So if they're running in the parking lot, I'm always going to reach out and stop them because I don't want them to die. That's the point. In the same way, God feels that same thing towards you and towards me. And he says, I know that you're heading towards a train wreck. I know you're heading towards getting hit by a car. And so, therefore, I'm going to rip you out of that situation. I'm going to expose your sin to the world so that way it will get out of your life because I don't want you to be destroyed. That's what he's doing. So when you have sin that's, that's, that's exposed, praise God because it means he loves you. That's, what he's, that's, what, that's what's happening here. Because here's the thing. If your sin is exposed, oftentimes when, when this things get out and we're like, why did God allow this to happen to me? Why? I embezzled those funds. I committed fraud with insurance company. I, I, I slapped a kid at school. Don't do that. Don't do that. But when these things come out, we think, why is this happening to me? God, 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 he must hate me because he didn't just let me slide by and be okay with this. That's not a sign that God hates you. You know what a sign that God hates you would be? His apathy towards you. If God didn't care what happened to you, that would mean he hates you. 
But just as you would discipline your own kids and run after them in the parking lot and rip them out of that situation, so too does God, who loves you, will run after you and say, listen, I know you're heading towards destruction, and I don't want that for you. And so therefore, I'm going to let you get arrested. Or I'm going to let you be exposed here. I'm going to let your wife find out. Because I want this out of your life. Because I want your good. He's like, I, and he says, I designed this world. God designed this world. He knows how it's meant to be lived. He knows what will bring ultimate peace. And he wants you to walk in that. He wants me to walk in that. Because all of this, what he wants to do is move us along in a thing called sanctification. He wants you to be like him. Like him. So there's a doctrine in in the Christian faith called sanctification. And what that means is the, it's the process of you becoming more like Jesus. And so when we ultimately attain that, we'll be dead and we'll be in heaven, okay? That's when we'll ultimately attain it. But over the course of your life, the, you have, from the moment you were saved until you die, you enter into a process of becoming more like him. And so, and so there, this takes faith. It takes trust that that God is for your good and wants you to continue in this process. But it's also, it's a two-way street. Sanctification takes two parts to make it work. It takes the Holy Spirit at work in your heart to bring about faith, to bring about the desire to follow God. But also the second thing is this. It takes you. It takes your action. It takes daily decisions to live for Christ and to put your sinful desires to, to rest or to, to death. And Augustus Strong was a theologian. He said this, give a man a gold mine, it's his. So like if you give someone a gold mine, they're there. It's theirs. You give them the deed to it, it's his gold mine. You don't have to work to attain it. That's your salvation. That is justification for you. It's yours. You are a God's child. You have the gold mine. He does not have to work for it. He only has to work it. Working for life is one thing. Working from life is quite another. Here's what he just said. Your sanctification, your becoming more like Jesus, takes your action God has given you a gold mine, and he says, take it. It's yours. You don't have to earn it. But to get anything out of it, you've got to put work into it. And so you have these daily decisions of, of, of God working in you, and then you deciding, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want to put these things out of my life. I want to confess sin and follow him. I want to take action to get this stuff out of my life to look more like Jesus because I want to move along and being more like him because I trust him that what he says for me is for my good. Let me, let me read Philippians chapter 2 to you because it's, it's both of these together, and I think, it's, I think it's a great picture for us. It says this, Philippians 2 Verse 12, and therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's on you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Put work into it. Seek to follow Jesus. But second thing is this. Look at verse 13. But when you see progress, for it is God who is working in you 
both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Here's what that just said, is that there is a command for us to pursue Jesus, to, to get things out of our life, to look more like him, more and more progressively over our life. But when you see progress, he said, know that it was the Spirit working within you to give you the desire to follow him, to give you the desire. And so sometimes when we're following, we don't, we don't have that. We think, man, I just feel dry. I just feel like man, God, I just, God's kind of just not listening to me. I'm trying to follow him, but it just feels dead. Did you know that you can pray for the desire to want to follow him? Because the Spirit wants to give it to you. The Spirit wants you to have the desire to follow him. But look back at verse 43. Look where Jesus goes here. It says, And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. He's taking this pretty seriously. He takes it to a, like a really deep level here. He says, listen, listen, if you lead other people to sin, it's better if you die gangster style. But the second thing is this, if you have sin in your life, and if it's your hand that's causing you to do it, why don't you just cut that thing off? In Pana, Pana, I don't know how to say this city's name, Pana, Illinois, there was a roach infestation in a house that was so bad, the city council uh, talked about it at one of their meetings, trying to figure out how they were going to handle it. They decided they were going to, over time, buy the property. Uh, and when they got the property, they burned the entire house down. But when they did it, they put a ring of fire around the entire house to prevent any escapees leaving the house. They said, this thing is so bad, the only way to exterminate all these roaches and to prevent it from contaminating all the rest of the, the houses in the neighborhood was to burn it to the ground. Sometimes the situation in your life, the situation with sin, that, like sometimes it's such that you need to just burn it to the ground to kill your sin. Sometimes, Jesus says, you need to take drastic measures to kill it in your life. Or he says, that, I like the way this, this, I heard this from another pastor. He says this, the call here from Jesus in cutting off your hand is take radical action to remove sin from your life. That's what his call here is. Now, he's using hyperbole here. That means an, an exaggeration. He's exaggerating here. He doesn't literally mean cut your hand off. Look what he says in verse 45. If your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. And look at verse 47. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. He's, he's exaggerating here because here's the truth. You can cut your hand off and still want to murder someone, even though you don't have the ability to strangle them anymore, okay? Like, it doesn't, doesn't, like, sin it takes root. It's from your heart. The problem is in your heart. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm not really meaning cut your hand off or cut your face off. He's saying, take whatever action is necessary to get this sin out of your life, because it will lead to your death. 
He says, it's better for you to, to enter life maimed. It means to gain new life in him and have a future with him and the new heavens and the new earth. It's better for you to enter into that without any hands than to have your two hands and to go to hell. That's what he says here. And this takes trust in God because here's the truth is that radical action to kill sin in your life can be pretty severe and pretty embarrassing. And so it takes trust. It takes a great amount of faith that the God who's telling you to do that is good and is working for your good. Because let me give you a couple examples of some radical actions. One, once you go apologize to your spouse or your ex-spouse or your child or your dad or your, that you haven't talked to in years, you could be the first person to apologize and with no expectation of them apologizing back. And just go say, hey, I'm sorry for how this happened, and I did this, and I hurt you, and I'm sorry for that. That is a radical action. You know what that demonstrates? The Spirit is working in your heart, and is humbling you, and leading you to be a servant. Here's another radical action. Put accountability software or apps on all of your devices. And then set up your spouse as the one who gets all of the all of the email alerts from it. I did that several years ago, uh, and every week, Derek gets an email with everything that anything has I've looked at on my phone or iPad or laptop, just as a safeguard. So every week she gets the email, and occasionally she'll ask about one where it's like uh, it, something will come up, like I was looking up something for a sermon. I did a, a, ser- a series on uh, sex and dating, and, man, that pinged every week. <laughs> like, uh, but, 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 but you know what happens is, is I know that that's there. I know that it's on here. And I know that my wife is going to be the one who sees it. And then when you first set it up, you're like, or when you first hear that, you're like, I, no, I could never do that. Why? because you want to continue to hide your sin. You don't want to confess it. And what Jesus says here is if your eye is causing you to sin, if your iPhone is causing you to sin, or your iPad or your laptop, if it's causing you to sin, take radical action and kill it. Cut it off. Do what's necessary. So maybe for some of us, maybe the first thing we need to do when we leave here is when our kids are not with us, go to your spouse and you say, hey, listen, I've got something I need to tell you. Because God's working on my heart and I want to rid myself of this. I'm not saying it's not going to be embarrassing or humiliating or hurtful to your spouse or that they're going to react really great. But their reaction or your fear of their reaction, Jesus gives you no out on that. Jesus doesn't give an out. He, He... he just says, take this, do what you need to do, confess this sin that, that you need to confess to whom you need to confess it to, and let it be what it is, and trust me. Here's another one. Maybe you need to confess to your employer about something. I don't know what. Or maybe you need to stop going to a specific place or, or putting yourself around a specific person that you know is going to entice you to sin. Here's what he says. 
take whatever measures are necessary to stop sinning, even if it hurts or it's hard or it's humiliating. And this is not an easy message. Like, it's not fun. But here's the truth, is that if you are trusting God, like if, you, if you're saying, like, I want to follow you, then he, what he's saying is, trust me. Trust me. Know that I am working for your good. It may be hard. But in the end, once the big thing is finally out, here's the thing, is if you have something in your heart that you know that you need to confess, like it's in there, you know what you feel all the time because it's there? Like the weight of that. It's the, like the weight of it. It's like in the book called The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. There was a spoiler alert. It was written like 300 years ago, but spoiler alert. Arthur Dimsdale was a pastor, and he had an affair with a woman. And over the course of the book, she, the whole town knew about her side of it, but they didn't know who the father was. And so he hid it through the entire book. And you know what happens over the course of the, you know, however many pages it is, the course of the entire book, you know what happens to him? So he gets progressively worse and worse of health, demeanor. His, 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 his conscience is always on him all day, every day, over the, the entire book. He's just, he, he's sinking. And the, the book ends with him finally confessing to the city that he's the one who had the affair, and then he dies. But there are also stories of, of men who, 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 who run away. Like, they, they, they escaped from, from prison, or they, they did, they had, like, they know that they committed a felony, and they just ran from it. And they were able to hide from it for a while, but you know what's in the, always in the back of the mind? Are the police ever behind me? You can read stories of men who, who like, over after years, finally either went and just confessed their sin or they were caught. And you know what their instant feeling is? Not upset that they got caught, but relief that's out there. And the same is true for me. Like, there have been times, like, I've had things to confess to Darren. I went and I just confessed it. And you know what happened? Leading up to it, I'm just dreading it, feeling so sick about it. But then I talk to her, and after it's done, I finally just have peace. (laughs) For the first time in a week or whatever, because I've had to, I've been thinking about it over and over and over, and I'm finally at peace, even if it's out there, and it's just done. And what Jesus says here is, I want that to be you. I want you to find peace. But also look at this. Look at the warnings. Look at verse 42. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell the unquenchable fire. Look at 45. If, you have a foot, if, if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here's a second doctrine that's, that's mentioned here in the Christian faith, and this is hell. It's hell. It's not a fun one. This is like my least favorite of all Christian doctrines. It's my least favorite. Because <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not like happy, you know? And Jesus says here, is it's very real. But catch this, because hell is so dreadful, Jesus' warnings here about our sin is so severe. 
And so a person who's truly been saved by Jesus will take action to kill sin and walk in repentance, which is the foundation of our life in Christ. When you believed in Jesus, the whole like, first section of it is to, is to come to Him and say, I need you. I know that I've messed up. I know that I'm a sinner, and I confess this to you, and I want to walk in life now. That is how you become a Christian, is you repent, and then the rest of your Christian life is a life of repentance. Of, of, of admitting yourself, recognizing your sin, of admitting it, of confessing it to God, and then walking in, in, uh, away from it. That's what repentance means. It means turning the opposite direction and going away. But if a person has no fruit of repentance, if you have no desire to confess your sin, you have no desire to kill it out of your life, then that may be a sign of, that there's no salvation as well. And have no real relationship with Christ. And if that's the case, then Jesus says you are in danger of hell. But I want you to catch the flip side of this. Jesus' warnings here are not severe solely because he wants to scare us or tell us to avoid it, although that is definitely a product of this. Because he desperately wants us to find life in him. That's what he wants. Here's the truth, is that God loves sinners. God doesn't look at us and say, man, you're stupid, and I hate you, and I wish you were better to be like with me. He's like, no, no, God loves sinners. He loves us, and he sent Jesus for us to die on the cross. And he, like, that's how he proved his love for us. And so he loves you, and he wants you. He wants you to find life in Him to kill sin that He knows is going to destroy you and destroy relationships in your life. He says, I want you to kill this out of your life and find new life in me that will lead to peace in you and in your family. That's what He wants because He loves you. And what you gain in the end is an eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. You get to live with your Savior. And that is worth the pain of killing any sin in your life. Listen, let me read Romans 8, 18 to you. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. You have a glorious future awaiting you of complete peace, of complete joy, apart from sin, with your Savior who loves you. And so now, for a little while, until we reach that with Him, here's what He says. I want you to begin living that life now. I want you to live now like you're in heaven with me. And so therefore, kill whatever sin is in your life. Because I don't want you to live in a, in a little hell here. I want you to live like me. That's what He's saying. And so here's the question is, what sin do you need to repent of? What radical action do you need to take today to remove sin from your life? And here's the call. Trust God. Listen to Jesus and find life in Him. And so take radical action to remove sin from your life. So as the band comes up, Some of us here may just need to hear those questions and, and, and may, may need to just say, hey, 
God, I, I, I want you to search me. I want you to point out something in my life that, like, I know that's not honoring to you, and I want you to rip it out of me, so help me. Some of us here may, may have never done this before and don't have any relationship with Jesus. I want, you to, I want you to hear this. If there's something compelling in this to you, something compelling in this, in this message in which, in which Jesus calls us to get rid of the junk in our lives and instead find peace and find hope and find life in Him and get to live, like try to live today like I'm living in heaven apart from sin and killing things out of my life that I know are going to hurt me. If there's something compelling in that, then you can, you can like learn who Jesus is. What I, what I recommend is grab one of our Bibles here if you don't have one to keep it. Pick up in John chapter 10 with us and start learning about who Jesus is. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know, I don't know where you're at today, but you do. The Spirit's speaking to us. And so I pray. Uh, I'm going I'm to pray here in just a second. And so if you want someone to pray with you, I'll be on the side over here. Brent will be over there. And so you can come, but maybe you just need to stay where you're at. Maybe you need to pray to God there. Maybe you need to stand up and praise God because you're under conviction and that means he loves you. I don't know. But after I pray, the band's going to play and you respond. And so, Father, come before you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for sending Jesus for us so that we know that you don't condemn us. Like, you don't, you don't hate us. You want to smite us, but, but, you, but you love us. And you love us so desperately to send us this warning. And so I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, God, and that you would convict us and lead us to take radical action to kill sin out of our lives, that we know there's not honoring to you. And so I pray that you would lead us to, to look more like you, to be people who, who walk in purity, who walk in righteousness, walk in wisdom, and to be people who are servants of all. And so those of us here who need to confess and need to repent, God, I pray that you would lead us and give us the boldness to do that and the faith to trust you that that's for our good. And for others of us, God, I pray that you would lead us to just worship you because you are a God who loves us and wants our best. So speak to us this morning. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.